Hey, it's Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Should conservative leader Aaron O'Toole stay, or should he go? What's the state of conservatism in Canada today? What's the future of conservatism in Canada? Our next guest, perfect person to talk about these big picture questions, Tasha Carradine joining us now, National Post columnist and principal at strategic public affairs firm Navigator. Hey, Tasha, how's it going? Oh, it's good, Anthony. How are you? I am doing well, and I'm glad to have you on the program because, you know, you literally wrote the book or at least a book on sort of big picture <laughs> questions around uh, conservative issues. It was, I know a number of years ago now, you wrote a book called uh, uh, Rescuing Canada's Right Blueprint for a Conservative Revolution. But I think the kind of things that you talked about back then in that book with your co-author, Adam DeFalla, that's kind of, I think, a conversation people would like to have right now. Yes, it, um, it seems that the right is still in need of rescue. Uh, the last two elections in Canada anyway, we've seen, um, you know, results that are disappointing to people in the Conservative Party and I think in the Conservative movement writ large, uh, sort of fractioning again of uh, right of centre support. Um, the rise of the People's Party in the last election was something that uh, is of concern to a lot of, of people in the Conservative Party. It sort of ate a bit of their vote. So um, there's a lot to hash out here. And well, as we know, uh, Aaron O'Toole is going to be fighting for his political future. So there's uh, a lot to get into in terms of future of him and the party, too. All right, let's do it. So that question of should he stay or should he go? I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. in some sense, the question will just kind of answer itself because there are mandated leadership reviews that happen. It doesn't have to, you know, happen right now, 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 tomorrow kind of thing. I know there's also um, the Reform Act that Michael Chong put in that we'll see conservative MPs, well, they have been able to say at caucus, this is what we want to have happen. And, you know, if a leader can't rally his own troops, if he can't rally his caucus, well, obviously you can't stay as, you know, you can't rally the nation either. So I feel like it's it's kind of going to figure itself out. How do you feel the process is going to go? Well, the process took a turn um, with the, uh, you know, the decision by caucus that they are going to allow themselves to review leadership. It's something right. that they voted on at the caucus meeting that they held. Uh, on the 5th of October. And as a result, um, there could be a review if 20% of the caucus decides that, that they should do so. Um, I've spoken to a number of conservatives uh, in the party and they don't feel that that is an imminent situation. They mm. did expect, in fact, that this would be the result um, at the caucus meeting, that there would be support for the for the principle of review, right. but that not that the review would happen. So that's where things are at. Of course, the membership also has the right to review and they have a convention. So like you said, there are touch points here that Mr. O'Toole could face and will face. And between now and then, he has a lot of work to do convincing caucus and uh, also the membership at large that you know his vision for the party or the vision that the party has been going down in the last election is the right one or perhaps that he wants to make some changes because clearly it didn't achieve the results that he uh, he expected well what do you think should happen well uh -huh. i think a lot needs to happen it doesn't just involve the leader i think right. the conservatives have to soul search yet again as to you know what who they are and what do they need to do and um i wrote a piece in the National Post um, on the weekend about this issue with regards to the future of Canada, because I think one of the problems that conservatives are facing is that they are out of step with the demographic changes that are happening in our country, have been happening for a while, will continue to happen, in fact, have been the story of Canada since its very creation. We are a nation of immigrants. We are a country that is not only built by immigration, it's beholden to it. We have uh, below uh, two children per one the replacement rate anyway um per woman in terms of children 
to so-called native-born Canadians or people who are first generation here. So we know that unless we have immigrants, new Canadians coming to Canada, we can't fill the labor market shortages that present. And in fact, a lot of them in the pandemic have been exacerbated as well. Uh, so we need to have new blood in our country consistently. Right. That means changes to how our society looks, functions, um, and the Conservative Party has not been successful in capturing the most recent waves, I will say the last 30 years, of uh, immigration to Canada as voters. Um, prior to that, there was successful outreaches under the Brian Mulroney, um, uh, you know, double the two governments that he had back to back majorities in the 80s to, as they were called then, cultural communities. That was the sort of term that right. was used. A lot of outreach was done. But there there needs to be outreach done because that is the future voter base in Canada. Not just that, it's also the future base in terms of uh, social you know, functioning. I mean, how are people being integrated into our country? Political integration is important too. So conservatives need to connect with those communities. They have not done so. And if they don't, they're not going to win the suburbs, the cities, the urban areas where more and more people are living and more and more votes are. Well, in what ways are they not doing that specifically? Because 2011, of course, uh, Stephen Harper got a majority government, won a lot of those writings. Yeah. Uh, when you look at a lot of those writings where there are, uh, you know, those new immigrant communities, the conservative candidate and, and sort of the, the leading sort of members of the, uh, of the writing association there, they typically reflect that community. What are the things that need to be done differently? Well, 2011 was a bit of an anomaly. In fact, I, I've spoken to a number of people since this article came out, and there's been a lot of interest in it, which is great. And I, I welcome that because I would like to, to delve more into this topic, get people's perspectives. And what's emerged is that uh, a lot of people felt the three elections that Stephen Harper fought, um, there were other factors, and I had sort of identified these already, that made it uh, easier for the conservatives to take those ridings and to take power in general, which were weak liberal leaders. You had, you know, Martin, Dion, and Ignatieff, not exactly a trio of like <laughs> of big winners there. Um, and you also had Jack Layton splitting the vote in 2011 uh. on the progressive side. That helped a lot in the communities you're talking about, the 905 particularly, where you had, yes, you're right, there uh, are riding associations that are very reflective of the particular communities that have established themselves there. Um, but it was more of the other side, you know, their, their vote was split, liberals were split. So it helped the conservatives win. Um, that hasn't happened since. And we know that in the GTA, uh, it's all red. The liberals have, have swept, right. uh, you know, Mississauga, Milton, um, you know, they even took that riding from Lisa Raitt last time around, a really strong conservative candidate, former cabinet minister. It's clear that something is going on. And the conservatives need to connect not on the basis of, gee, we want your votes, for the next election, we're going to show up at your dinners like Jason Kenney did for many years and just, you know, be there. It's a question of connecting on the values that conservatism stands for. And that's why the party has to do a deeper dive into what it is and connect to the issues that matter to new Canadians. And that I identify in the piece, it really is, you know, establishing yourself in a new country, making your way economically, making a better life for your children, very important to immigrants and new Canadians. Um, being successful in an environment that's not familiar to you. And conservatives have a lot of answers to those questions. They also have a number of hurdles they have to overcome based on the perception of the conservative party, rightly or wrongly, that these people may have. 
how do they deal with that perception if we're assuming that it's largely wrongly? You know, narratives that liberal strategists put forward that, you know, the old Canardo, this is a racist party, a racist candidate, mm-hmm. or what have you. And then to your point, no matter how much outreach there is, you're still going to get hit uh, with that label. Uh, I, well, I guess here's the question. You said rightly or wrongly. Is it rightly or is it wrongly? Well, it's both. I, I think the wrongly piece is that conservative parties around the world uh tend to be tagged with the anti-immigration label. There are far-right parties, you see this in Europe quite a bit, who are anti-immigration. So people who have experiences that are political experiences that are different than than living in Canada, people who come from other countries, whether it's Europe, but mostly the developing world, who may come from Africa, who may come from South America, um, and Asia and South Asia, what they call, what conservatism is painted as there is not what is necessarily here. So, you know, right-wing juntas uh, are very negative things. You talk to someone who's lived that experience in Central or South America, and they're like, oh, right-wing, like, ugh, no. Right, right. You know, um, so that label has to be disputed. People have to understand that label is not the same thing here. So that's one hurdle. The second thing, though, is that there is actually um, an anti-immigration streak that does run through the Conservative Party and more the People's Party, definitely. But it is it is there, and it's been there Interestingly enough, I think since the split with the Reform Party, um, I was speaking with Brian Mulroney, um, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, uh, over the weekend, actually, about this, because he was interested in the piece as well, and he had some thoughts he wanted to share. And one of them was he felt that reform was sort of a break between the progressive conservative and the sort of conservative party we have now. It's like a, you know, a, a bridge in there. Okay. But that bridge was seen as anti-immigrant by a lot of, of new Canadians. And as a result, that that feeling has carried over to the conservative party because many people see it as dominated by former people from the reform. So there's that piece. And second, under Stephen Harper, there were things done that immigrants really didn't like. Um, The basically, you know, about 90% of family reunification disappeared. Uh, It was made very difficult to reunify with your family because immigration became very economically focused and family reunification was pushed off the table. The liberals bought it back. It's no no surprise. Um, And one can understand from an economic perspective. Well, you know, if you're bringing over your grandparents, your relatives, all people who aren't necessarily in the prime of their working lives, aren't gonna contribute the same way, are gonna use the healthcare system. People say, oh, this is a drain, this is bad. Well, here's the reality for, if you're coming to a new country and you have no support system and family is incredibly important to you, the message that telegraphs to you is A, we wanna make it harder for you to succeed here. And B, we don't share your view that family is a cornerstone of, you know, of life um, and it's a value, ironically conservatives have right right conservatives are you know faith family free enterprise that's a sort of uh, i guess the russell kirk american trifecta that people sometimes use as a basis for what conservative thought is it's very simplified but family is really important and that piece did turn off and i've spoken to new canadians about this that really did turn off a lot of people in new canadian communities that the conservatives did that and yet at the same time, you also hear the counter argument from a lot of conservatives that, okay, we are the party that is at least more welcoming to social conservatives, which you get more of uh, from people in new immigrant communities. Uh, we are the party that is much more amenable to small businesses. We know Justin Trudeau famously mm-hmm. saying, oh, they're all tax cheats and so forth. Got to change the rules about them. So, so much of, of the new Canadian experience uh, has a strong connection to conservative party platforms and, and the, sort of the general conservative approach right now. So uh, how do you make that all work together? Well, social conservatism doesn't necessarily translate to the same type of social conservatism that new Canadians have. To say that, you know, um, new conservatives have the same values as the Christian right. Uh, and I don't, yeah, and I don't of, mean anti-gay you know, marriage and I don't mean anti-abortion so much so, but the, yeah. the, the family unit issues that you're getting at. I understand, but it, there's not necessarily an automatic solidarity, if you will, um, 
simply on the basis of that between social conservatives that were established social conservatives in Canada and social conservative or, or communities that come over that may have socially conservative views. And I think we've seen actually the conservatives try to play on that. They tried to play on that on the um, the marijuana legalization issue. Hmm. Uh, it didn't really work either to say, well, you know, you don't like pot, like, you know, look what the liberals are going to do. Well, that didn't work. They didn't get the votes in Scarborough. They didn't get the votes in places where they, they ran campaigns like that. I think rather than... Um, you know, trying to say, uh, look, uh, we have a social conservative wing that, that is like you kind of thing. I think it, it would be more effective to say, here are the principles that that all conservatives have, including social conservatives, including, I would say, even libertarians. I mean, I don't think many libertarians are anti-family. In fact, it's hard to find anyone's really anti-family. It's a question of how you define the state's relationship with the family. And that is something that is different than the way the liberals do. And you see it, for example, with childcare policy. Um, you know, the liberal childcare policy is we will give money to the provinces for spaces. The conservatives did differentiate on that and say we will give it directly to families. Um, but it's not enough to simply have sort of one issue. You have to sort of holistically say, well, you know, what is a conservative? What is a conservative society? To your point, you want to have a small business. What does what do you need for that small business? We don't say we're going to throw government money at you, but you need consumers. You need uh, people to spread the word about your business. I mean, maybe you need people to work in the business. And hey, when you bring your family in, guess who might end up working in the business with you? Um, you know, I, this is the kind of big picture of saying we want to give you the ability to have the supports in the community that will allow you to be successful. Community is not government. It is is a different animal. It is local. It can be voluntary associations. It can be uh, you know in the immigrant welcoming associate. It could be a lot of things. It is not a you know federal government program. It is not a provincial. It is something that people often band together, these sort of little platoons of society that Edmund Burke calls them, where people will do things on their own. But you need to have a critical mass of community to do that. So that is a place where the conservatives can say, look, we're not about top down government. We want to enable these supports that are around you. We want to enable the village, basically, to quote Hillary Clinton, though I don't usually do that a lot, <laughs> um, to help you be successful at the things you want to do, which is, like you said, earn your living, start a business, perhaps uh get your kids a great education, put a roof over your head, do these things, all the things that are important to you. We believe in that small, you know, that, that, that vision too. It is not about top down. It is about bottom up and government should be minimal. Government shouldn't take too much money from you. We need government, but we know its place, but there are other things in the community. We're not all islands, you know, um, Tasha, you're talking about such a such a big picture conversation here that I agree with you. It's a conversation that needs to be had. The challenge is that I feel like so many people, uh, pretty much everybody in Canada under 45 or, or whatever the age mark is, has now more likely been brought up and, and been acclimatized to the idea that, oh, there's a problem in your community, in your life, in your business, what have you. Why isn't government solving this in a way that that did not happen a couple decades ago, a few decades ago? Uh, the author Neil Ferguson, and he's not the only one pointing this out, but in, in, he has a he has a book called The Great Degeneration, where he talks about the erosion of civil society is one of our biggest mm -hmm. biggest threats right now. And one of the things that's been really unfortunate about the pandemic is civil society just doesn't exist. It's just us sitting at home, and then the government tells you what you can and can't do, and so forth. So we've got another eighteen months of people who who have further been distanced from civil society. And to have those conversations, you know, up on the stage, anytime it says, you know, why isn't the government solving this problem? And then Trudeau or whoever turns around and says, well, you don't care about group X or you don't care about problem X. No, I care about mm -hmm. it deeply, but I think we can solve it as a community together kind of thing. How do we overcome that? I mean, what you're putting forward, it's such a hurdle of a conversation. It's one I'm with you. I'm with you on, but it's a challenge. 
Oh, it absolutely is. And it's a very fair question because the pandemic has definitely exacerbated the role of government. Um, it's made people actually more interested in government than ever before. In fact, um, at Navigator, we did a number of focus groups and some in-depth research into how people felt uh, about the new government, how liberal voters in particular felt about the new government, what they were looking for. And the insights that we got, big picture was big government. They mm. want a government that takes care of them. And that's not to say all conservative you know, voters feel that way, but the government will respond to its supporters chiefly. And that is what they're looking for. It is government has become your friend much more in the last 18 months. That's absolutely true. However, there are always pendulum swings. And I think that the swing will happen as people do emerge from the pandemic. This isn't a short term thing, by the way. What I'm talking about is not, you know, let's fix this for the next election. Here's the recipe for Aaron O'Toole in the next yeah. what, two years. It's really, um, you know, a, sh a decades long process because immigration will keep shaping Canada. And by 2030, we're going to have a very different country. One third of Canadians will be born outside of it. One third, like right. I, that is it's a huge, and that's in just 10 years, basically. Um, it, it's something that we have to remember. So people's experience of politics will be very different than what people who are here for generations have lived. We have to bridge that gap. And the conservatives are in a position to do that. I think that people will get sick of government intervention at a certain point. It, again, it, it takes you know some swings and some time. But I think that the hunger also for those connections that are, we've been missing, I don't know about you, but you know, I went to a wedding the other day, the first wedding I've been to in two years, basically. It was the most joyous thing because yeah, totally. people. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. <laughs> and and I think people will be hungry for more of that. Um so I, I do think there will be an appetite for this kind of engagement again. Yeah, and I, and I guess you know, the question is to what degree did Aaron O'Toole focus group himself into a position where he didn't engage with these questions? Because a lot of people are saying the problem with Aaron O'Toole's loss is that he actually abandoned conservative principles. Others are saying the problem with Aaron O'Toole's loss is he didn't go far enough to what people wanted. He didn't go far enough to the center or far enough to the left or what have you. And that's kind of the tension mm -hmm. I feel right now in, in, in the question of uh, both within the movement and then, you know, the old joke is you can always find some of the CBC and Toronto Star to tell the conservatives why they need to be more left. But, you know, put that aside, even within the tent, there's a question about where to head and where they right. did not correctly head. Right, and there was a poll out I saw, in fact, just this week, which showed that uh, apparently the reason he lost is people didn't know him, which is interesting hmm. that, you know, that was the Liberals banked on that, that he was not very well known, partly because the pandemic couldn't get out there, was a new leader. Do you think that's true? And that's why they, they went with the devil they knew. I think there's a certain amount of truth to that, but I do think also that Aaron O'Toole's main problem is that for the conservative base, some of which didn't turn out, by the way, that was one of the issues that the conservative uh, vote faced in this election too is not everybody showed up because many people who supported him initially i mean he gave the impression during the leadership that he was a very right of center you know blue blue tory um very you know spoke out about things like cancel culture on university campuses and freedom of speech and and then he canceled a couple and, people <laughs> yeah <laughs> right and so um people were expecting you know that was the Aaron O'Toole that showed up then and then the Aaron O'Toole that showed up for the the election was, I think, the real Aaron O'Toole from everyone I've spoken to who knows him said, well, right. that's actually who he is. He is not, it's not like he's a centrist guy, but he is more progressive than conservative than he is just purely conservative. And he started doing that even at the convention when, you know, 
climate change is real folks and that's not what the party agreed to and there was that schism there that got a lot of attention the signs were already there but there was a split between expectation and reality and the reality he delivered you know some people felt disappointed by that they were looking for something else so the lesson to me in all this is you've got to be genuine you cannot i mean i get it he wanted to win the leadership he was up against mckay who was more centrist so he wanted to differentiate and you know capture the more right of center vote but you can't do that and then switch you have to be yourself because if you don't win on your own merits well it's going to bite you someday you know kelly leach saw that movie too when she ran for leadership a couple leaderships ago i mean i know kelly leach since she's 18 years old she was never a hardcore right wing uh you know anti-immigration like the stuff she spouted off was not her and she didn't win votes for that and i think a lot of people who you know knew her were confused by the position she was presenting and it, it, you have to be yourself and so Aaron O'Toole, to me as a leader he has to convince the party to go with him not the reverse it's like okay this is the path come with me not uh, I'm going to just bow to you, do say what you want, and then then take off over here. Can't do that. He has to have a vision. And that vision, I will say too, it's not just about new Canadians, so it's a very important piece. It's also about having a vision of Canada and what is Canada in the next you know, 20 years. Um, we talk a lot about climate change, for example. That policy that they had, it was interesting, but impossible to explain in a soundbite. And quite frankly, I don't think people really liked it. They, climate change is a weird issue. People care a lot about it, but they have no idea what they really want to have done. <laughs> and if it's, you know, it's true. And, and if this came through in our research as well, if, you know, people, people trust the liberals to care about it, right, even though right. they couldn't name anything that the liberals had actually done. It was well, really weird. It, it's a perfect issue because I know the conservatives, there's always, what's Aaron O'Toole's climate change plan? What's it going to be? How is it yeah. going to match up to the liberals and so forth? And I know this is an incredibly contentious issue, again, in the conservative movement. My position, which some people would really support, other people in the movement really against, is I go, look, why don't we follow the voluntary principles here? Businesses are doing a lot. They're putting R&D into it. There's a green revolution coming. Just let it happen. Let it do its thing. We don't need to be in the Paris deal. We don't need the carbon tax get out of this stuff. They're nationally determined contributions. And there's your differentiator because you've got the Green Party, you've got the Liberal Green Party, you've got the NDP Green Party, et cetera, et cetera. Propose the alternative vision. And then some people say, well, hold on a second. That's a big problem because our focus groups tell us voters don't want that. I mean, where do you head on an issue like that? Yeah, I think, honestly, um, there are things that Canada can do as a country and, and government can help facilitate this. It's not that government will be, you know, extracting the ore itself. Right. <laughs> we do talk about the need for electrification, uh, you know, moving away from fossil fuels. Well, this is all very nice, but unless you have the raw materials to build electric cars, they are not going to happen. Where are we going to get the nickel, the cobalt, the actual, it's, you know, you actually have to do some dirty stuff here. You have to do mining, which isn't really dirty, but that's how people perceive it. It's like, oh, it's not environmentally friendly. Well, guess what? You don't get to be environmentally friendly without uh, doing some things that people have an impression are not environmentally safe. In fact, mining has come a very long way. And that's a whole other conversation about um, the extraction process. But Canada could be a leader in electrification and the production of the components to build an electric world, electric cars, electric power. Um, we, you know, if you want a grand vision for this country, I know that, you know, the, the ring of fire in Ontario alone is a source that could be, you know, extremely beneficial, not just to Canada, but to the world. And that's a government you role could, to be the incubator for that. 
you could be yes, exactly because you need i mean you need roads you need infrastructure you need things you need also environmental permission you have all you know all these things there are layers and hurdles companies have to go through the point is if as a government you have a vision for this and say okay well you know what uh the oil sands were harper's vision that was his vision he really had this vision of canada's petro state well maybe canada's not a petro state maybe canada's meant to be um you know an electric state and how do we get there and what would we do i think there's ways to make this interesting and think outside the box just nobody's really doing that so i think that that's the kind of thing conservatives can grab onto as well um you propose something that is a big picture you know the liberals have their signature policy now this will be trudeau's legacy will be daycare it will be childcare. that is his legacy it's going to be you know done over the next couple of years will that be undone good luck uh you know you may not subscribe to his view but once it's done, it's there. It'll be very hard to pull back. It's interesting when you talk about vision, because you also mentioned Brian Mulroney. And when I think of a Canadian mm-hmm. political leader, I would say Brian Mulroney and perhaps Jack Layton are the only recent federal political leaders. And I say recent. I know Brian Mulroney has been out of office for many years who had a strong vision. I guess Stephen Harper had that vision as well. I feel like in the American leadership echelon you get much more visionaries. I mean, Donald Trump, he certainly had a vision. Whatever you think of drain the swamp, build the wall, that's a vision. Barack (laughs) Obama definitely had a strong vision out there. I mean, they have much more uh, greater frequency of visionary leaders here. Do we just suffer from a deficit of that? Do do they have it, but they just don't, they just don't present when, you know, the curtain call rises and they say, okay, do the show. I mean, what's going on with true leadership in Canadian politics right now? Well, I think it is lacking. I think was, it certainly there's, there's a sense that, you know, I mean, the conservatives always have this, this this push-pull because they are not in favor of big government to begin with. So having big government visions isn't something that conservatives, you know, want to have. I mean, Stephen Harper, like, I challenge you, name something, a big legacy piece that he's left. There is none. Um, but that was probably his intention, to be honest, because his intention was to shrink the size of government, right. um, which he did. And he, he did. did. In fact, when, when you said name, exactly. name one thing, all I can think of is that the count of the federal public service did not actually go up over 10 years. Yeah. So there you go. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, um, that he, but it's, it's, it's not something you can put on a wall. It's not something you can put like, okay, free trade, something that will endure for, for generations or the GST, which right. while it was a hated policy, it's still there. It's and quite frankly, yeah, if we were smart, we'd have a higher VAT or GST and a lower income tax like European countries do. But we don't. But anyway, the point is, those were the two signature policies Mr. Mulroney put in. Uh, Jean Chrétien expanded that to free trade with Mexico. So we have the North American Free Trade Agreement. He did a lot of, um, well, I mean, you know, trading with China. We can talk about that another show, but trying to expand Canada's reach into other markets. He was very much business focused in that way, working with business. And he also slayed the deficit. Paul Martin did do that. Um, you know, a lot of pain to the provinces, perhaps, but that was done. So there are things you can say, OK, he did that. He did that. I think that that is a problem conservatives have. We have to find a vision that doesn't involve necessarily emptying the public purse, but does involve government actually doing something, leading on something. And I think you can do that. Like I said, I think, um, you know, Canada's role in, in providing solutions to green power is something we could we could potentially be a, uh, a big player in. Um, I think also, you know, knowing that Canada is an immigration society, that um, moving forward with ways to really engage and, I guess, overcome some of the barriers, because this generation of new Canadians faces issues that, you know, my parents' generation didn't. My mother got called a crouch, by the way. She's from Germany. Just even in the early 2000s by one of her neighbors in a small town in Ontario. I swear. Really? There's still pre- yes, she yes, and she got she faced a lot of anti-German prejudice when she came to Canada in the 60s. She's told me stories of this. But it's not the same as someone 
who comes, you know, from, uh, let's say, Sri Lanka or comes from India or comes from Africa and they get you know, racially stereotyped. They face that prejudice day in, day out. And we know that inequality and systemic racism is a huge, huge issue right now. It is an issue for people from communities and it's an issue for people who are not who say this should stop. Moving forward on that issue, what's the conservatives policy on that? Like what, what's their, what's their answer to make equality of opportunity a reality for people, take down barriers. That's something they have to think about too, because that's a big part of the conversation, especially for those younger voters you've talked about. They've had it. They're not, you know, they want, they want things to, to change and government does have a role in that. So I think that's something you have to think about. Too. What meaningful policies should conservatives embrace? Because I think Justin Trudeau's answer is just let's find people or imprison them for putting out mean tweets and so forth, which is just not a direction <laughs> I want us to head in. But well, yeah, there's a huge conversation around that with various legislation. What, what's the more meaningful way uh, to bring about that that sort of inclusive society? Well, I think it's I mean, it's a very individual thing. Um, which is something that conservatives believe it starts, you know, it starts from, from you. Um, it's, it can't be forced on you. Um, at the same time, I think education and opportunities for people to improve their status of living is one of the key drivers, because the more that you see other people who look like you succeed, the more you believe you can, and the more you will, and the more representation there will be. Um, so I know that education is, is a provincial uh, jurisdiction, but there are ways the federal government can insert itself to enable opportunity for new Canadians, for people from communities to actually access the kind of education that native born Canadians might find much easier to do. I think also there are ways of ensuring that when people do come to Canada, that the, and we've talked about qualifications in the past, the people who come here, um, you know, that, that their qualifications are more easily recognized, that there are not systemic barriers to saying, okay, well, just because your degree is from here, well, we don't, you know, you'll have to do like 50 hours of retraining. Well. Maybe some people have to, but many people may not. Is there a way to streamline that to work with professional associations, to work with the provinces to say, hey, let's make sure that right. when people come here, they can actually get on their own two feet faster and, you know, be that doctor, be that nurse. We need people like that. So I think that, you know, enabling people to make the most of what they have. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of erasing prejudice, I think that you do also have to make a concerted effort to have people from communities represented in your own party. I mean, it's only like now, I think it's 6% of the caucus is what you would call BIPOC as in uh, Black, Indigenous, or people of color. The Liberals, it's 30, all right? And I'm not saying, you know, tokenism and just pick people because they're from, no. Sure. There are so many qualified people. Women have faced these barriers forever, too, in terms of getting nominations that may not have the connections or may, you know, not have the money to help people have their shot. If they don't win the nomination at the end of the day, fine. But if they had a fair shot and didn't, you know, and didn't win it, it's different than saying you started from, you know, way back here and this person had more of an advantage. There's so much talent out there. And I think that would be very important for the conservatives to ensure that they are more representative of the society that they're trying to connect with. Tasha, before we go, so much of our conversation has been about the deficits with the conservative party right now, with platforms, positions, where to head. And I'm sure liberals hear this sort of stuff and go, this is exactly where we want them, thinking that all, oh, you know, it's doom and gloom and, and we're really in the gutter right now. At the same time, 2019 election, 2021 election, say what you want about Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, they got more votes than Justin Trudeau. So the popular vote sort of prevailed, uh, at least for the conservatives. So all is certainly not lost. How lost mm -hmm. are things? I mean, are we just talking about a, a couple little surgical tweaks here? What, what do you see as being the future? No, it's not surgical because it's, the conservatives can get more votes, but if they're concentrated 
in ridings or, or parts of the country where there aren't many ridings or, or electoral districts, they're not going to get more seats. And I don't think proportional representation would help the conservatives either because, uh, you know, it's the argument, oh, well, then they could ally and form, well, who are they going to ally not with? Not going to happen, um, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so you know, you, you either you win big, you go big or go home, right? So you've got to win the cities. You've got to win the suburbs. And maybe you won't get downtown. But you've got to get that 905. You've got to get the outer, the suburbs of Vancouver. You've got to be able to go where the growth is and be part of that growth. If you're not, you're going to become a regional rump party over time. It's going to happen because you're too concentrated in those few spots. So, and I don't think that's what the conservatives want at all. Even people who, you know, who live there, they don't want that. I don't think the West wants to see itself as a regional party in the conservative mold. Um, I think, you know, they want to be part of something bigger than that. And there's a way to do that, but you've got to do, put the work in. And unless they do that, it, it, you know, that will not happen. Becoming part of something bigger. Great place to yeah. leave it at. Tasha Carradine, <laughs> thanks so much for stopping by. Great to chat with you. Great to read your columns up at National Post. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, all the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.